you to open your Bibles tonight to the first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, where we're going to introduce our study together tonight. Glad to have you with us, as we said this morning, and as we have said already tonight, we are thankful for our visitors. We're thankful for our members. We're thankful for people that we haven't seen in quite some time. And we're glad to be together to worship our God together tonight. We have been engaged in a series of studies on select Sunday evenings throughout 2022 on the subject of understanding angels a little bit better and trying to get a better grasp as to who they are, what their functions are, what their purposes were and maybe are, and where certain angels come from and what they do and where they go and their doings and their biddings. And I appreciate so much the the kind uh, encouragement that you have given me over the last uh, four or five months as we have uh, gathered together to study this particular subject. Some of you have uh, remarked that you are finding it helpful, uh, so I appreciate that. If you're not finding it helpful, tell me that it's helpful just the same uh, and encouraging, and I hope that that will be the case. Um, But I do appreciate the, the, the sincere feedback because these sermons are a little bit different than typical sermons in that they are a little bit more of a teaching side of things, but yet are also encouraging because they teach us about angels, which encourages us to live in a righteous way. And that certainly is true with the fifth installment, where we tonight look at the subject of Satan. And as Bible students, you understand that a discussion of angels would be incomplete without a discussion of Satan. Uh, and who he was, and who he is, and what he looks like, and what his functions are, because of some of the misteachings on the subject, as well as some of the appropriate teachings on the subject. And so as we continue to look at angels over the next two to three months as we conclude this study, I thought it important to go ahead and take the moment now and talk about where did he come from? What is his purpose? Why is he created? Uh, Where did he come from and what is his role today? So there are so many questions about Satan. And there are so many questions about angels in general. And I have said repeatedly throughout this series that when it comes to all the questions, that I don't have all the answers. And we have quoted from Deuteronomy 29.29, which is a good memory verse For anybody who's going to preach or study the Bible or teach the Bible, because sometimes there are things that are secret that are only known to God. And that's not a cop-out to say that. That's not something to say when you don't know the answer, because there may be an answer that you just haven't found yet in Scripture. But there are certain things that just are mysterious, that are left to the knowledge of our Creator and not to us. Well... There are a number of questions that people typically ask about Satan. Here are five, and we're going to explore these five tonight by making three or four broad applications. One of those is, where did Satan come from? Uh, What's his origination? And we'll talk about that in our uh, final point tonight. Or, was Satan created by God for the purpose of tempting man? Is that why God created Satan, just to plague us and to make our lives more difficult. And we'll try to explore that as well. Thirdly, is Satan a fallen angel? And that's why this particular study of Satan falls within the scope of eight sermons on the subject of angels. 
Some have asked the question, well, if Satan is real and we believe that he's real, what does he look like? And we'll have some suggested images in just a moment as to what Satan looks like. And then some have even argued or asked or wondered aloud, uh, maybe genuinely so, is Satan equal to God, just the, the evil side of things? God is the good and Satan is the evil, and they are in this combative stance against one another for all of eternity. We will try to address some of those questions because I believe that a study of angels without an introduction to Satan would be incomplete. Now, this is not so much a study of how to defeat Satan, although we'll talk about that a little bit. There are plenty of sermons that either I or David or others have preached on understanding Satan and his wiles or his tactics. And that's not necessarily the subject of our study together this evening. But I want us to talk about the appearance of Satan, number one. I want us to talk about what Satan is permitted to do because Satan has an allowance. Not in terms of a, an allowance where a parent gives to a child and says spend it wisely. But Satan is allowed to do particular things, which is why we talk about him and why we warn our children about him. We're going to talk about what Satan is not and then we'll talk about where Satan came from and do our very best to stick with the scriptures on these particular subjects. I want to start with this, and that is, what does Satan look like? Well, when it comes to the physical appearance of Satan, I really don't know what he looks like. You know, and we do not know what the Lord looked like when he lived on this earth for 30-some years, and we don't know what, of course, uh, Satan looks like. Uh, there have been all kinds of images, and this is a very scientific way of doing it. These days, you just type in images of Satan, and you get all kinds of very interesting and crazy and kind of scary images that are out there. And I won't leave these up there too long so that the children won't have nightmares. But then again, maybe we do need to have some uh, trepidation towards Satan and what he may look like. But ultimately, uh, the final picture is the question mark, and that's what he looks like. We don't know what Satan looks like. We depict him as this very ugly creature, scary creature, and the kind of thing that would give you nightmares. And so the fact is, is the Bible doesn't tell us about his appearance physically, but the Bible does give us a lot of descriptions as to who Satan was and who he is. And so that's the more important thing. We know that God looks at the inside of a man more than he does the outside. And we know that God is more concerned about Satan and his heart versus what he would physically look like. And that's where we're going to focus our attention in our first observation tonight. I want us to look and understand that Satan appears or employs or does things in a number of different ways. But let me share with you just four of them at the outset of our study. Number one, to understand Satan or to describe Satan or to the appearance of Satan is whatever a liar looks like. Whatever a deceptive individual looks like because Satan is a liar. In fact, if you think about our introduction to the devil, to the wicked one, to the evil power of Satan, we are introduced to him in Genesis chapter 3 as being a liar. In fact, John chapter 8 verse 44 talks about Satan being the father of all types of lies because he is deceptive in his very nature. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, we are told in chapter 3 and verse 1 that the serpent, or Satan, as we come to know him, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And then he has this conversation with the woman, Eve. 
that we are familiar with and that many in the world are familiar with. They understand this conversation where uh, Satan says to Eve, has God not told you something about the tree? And she repeats back almost verbatim what it is that God had commanded of, of her and of, the, uh, and of the man. And then in verse 4, if you want to circle verse 4 and just write out to the side, L-I-E, here is the first lie ever told as is recorded. Because chapter 3 verse 4 is a lie. What does it say in chapter 3 and verse 4? It says, the serpent says, you will not surely die. Now, the interesting thing about Satan is he takes truth and he twists it with fiction and he makes it difficult to kind of see through it. And he deceives us into believing things that are not actually true. Because it is true that Eve did not die that day. But it is true that Eve died that day. And you have to figure out what kind of death we're talking about. There's a physical death and there's a spiritual separation from God that has to be appreciated. And so we need to appreciate that if we're going to look at Satan, what does he look like? I'm not sure what a liar looks like, but Satan looks an awful lot like a liar. Secondly, Satan has the appearance of one who is bitter, one who is angry, one who is going to take out that bitterness on others. And for that matter... What he does is he actually ends up searching out angry or disgruntled or bitter human beings in order to accomplish his goal. Which is one of the reasons why we have to be cautious about being bitter or about letting the sun go down on our wrath. As Paul talks about to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 4 in quoting from an Old Testament passage. I want to go back and read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 about seven verses here. We'll read them rather rapidly and then just make an observation or two real quickly about it. But 2 Corinthians chapter 2 to me is a pivotal passage when it comes to understanding Satan, how he works, and how he does things. It says in verse 5, if anyone has caused grief... He has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, now picking up in verse 6. And he says in verse 6, This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. Now, you've got to figure out the context of 1 Corinthians, probably chapter 5, in order to really appreciate 2 Corinthians 1 and, and 2. But without even understanding all of that, you still get... The point that I'm trying to make here. On the contrary, you ought rather to forgive someone who's done wrong and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. The him here is likely the offender in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, though some have suggested that it could be anybody that is involved in sin. And I think there's something to be said about that as well. For to this end I also wrote, past tense, that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now watch verses 10 and 11. You'll see the connection that I'm trying to make here. He says, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive, Paul says. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, unless or lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So, He says, I want you to be forgiving. I want you to be gracious. I want you to be long-suffering with others. And the word bitterness is not used in these five, six, seven verses. But it seems very clear to me that one of the things that the Holy Spirit is going after here is that if someone has wronged you or someone has wronged me, there's a chance, an opportunity for us to allow that to fester and to, for us to be bitter. And that's an opportunity for Satan to 
target us. Speaking of Satan targeting individuals, what does Satan look like? He is thirdly someone who targets believers. We sometimes say, and I think rightly so, and I have said this before to people who are, are very young Christians, those who are young in the faith, the idea that once you become a child of God, you are now have, you have a target. You have the crosshairs of Satan in you. If you are not a Christian, it's not that Satan's not going to tempt you. He's probably going to do a steady dose of tempting you. But the fact is, is he's got you where he wants you. But what happens is when you say, you know what, I'm turning my back on Satan and I'm turning towards Christ and I'm going to do what the Lord wants me to do. Now Satan says, hmm, you've got my attention. I want to, I want to target you. I want to make life difficult for you. Remember that when we become saints, which is not something that happens three to five hundred years after we die, but it happens when we are baptized into Christ, we are individuals who become the focus of Satan. I want to look at three passages Two in the New Testament and one kind of obscure in the Old Testament that I hope you'll also appreciate. First of all, in John chapter 13 and verse 2. John chapter 13 in the Gospel of John. Chapter 13. Turn back to verses 1 and 2. It says, Before the feast of the Passover, you know what's happening here. When Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And it says, the supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Who was Judas? Some of you were talking in your Bible classes this morning. I overheard uh, about Judas, the friend of Jesus, the apostle of Jesus, who turned his back on Jesus and betrayed him. Uh, and did a very a despicable, mean-spirited, uh, bitter and rude thing, to say the least. And it says here in verse 2 that the devil put it into his heart. Now, we understand that that doesn't mean that Judas was innocent. That doesn't mean that Judas says, well, Satan overtook me. I just had to do that. That's not what the scripture is saying. That's not taught anywhere in scripture. And then over in Acts chapter 5, just to compare, Acts chapter 5 verse 3 uh, where Peter comes to Ananias and Sapphira. You remember what they did? They lied to the apostles. And equally or more important, they lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. Peter said, Ananias, why is Satan, here it is, filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? You see, the fact of the matter is, is when we are believers, Satan will tempt us to do bad things. To do evil in the sight of our Lord. Now here's the obscure passage. You may say, I have no idea why we're going back there. Well, let's go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1. 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1. And I just want to read one, that one verse there where it says, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Whether it is Ananias, whether it is Judas, or whether it is David, a man after God's own heart. We deceive ourselves into believing that Satan will leave us alone if we are just simply doing our job as Christians. Simply doing our job as Christians is exactly what Satan wants to stop us from doing. And he'll take every opportunity to do so. And that's a frightening thing that we have such an enemy. And I appreciate 
uh, our, our brother Virgil reading from 1 Peter chapter 5 where it says, Be wary, he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may not just nibble at, not just harm a little bit, but he wants to devour you. He wants to destroy you. And the thing about Satan, and I've said this numerous times because I'm saying it not just to others, but I'm saying it to myself. Satan is not interested necessarily in getting you to completely stop the church stuff. And And I say that kind of with an asterisk next to it. He just wants you to play at church. He just wants you to attend, show up, make it so that you read your Bible maybe once a year, pray from time to time. But the rest of the time, you're dedicated to a life of selfishness and self. If he can get you to do that, he's not necessarily trying to get you to stop Christianity. He just doesn't want Christ to be your number one focus. Because if Christ is not number one, Christ is equal to the last. And we've got to remember that in the way that we live. And then fourthly, we need to appreciate and understand and remember that Satan employs false teachers. Which is why when James writes in his very powerful but short letter late in the New Testament, he says, let not many of you become teachers because of the stricter judgment of the law. Given the fact that false teachers teach and they can be persuasive, they are prime targets for Satan. You know, we've all had very good teachers. We've had good Bible class teachers. Uh, We have good Bible class teachers. Whether it be those that you look back when you were in junior high, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and say, well, man, he was a really good teacher. Or you think back to your third grade Bible class, she was a really good teacher. Or you think back to high school or college or some sort of a trade course and think, man, he was, a, he was a good teacher at what he did. He really got the point across. They are persuasive. And so what ends up happening is that Satan says, I'm going to find someone who has that persuasive ability, that teaching ability, that teaching heart, and I want to see if I can turn them. I know that because of passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to read four verses separated by about 10 verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to start in verse 3, and then we're going to skip to some verses in verses 14 and 13. Verse 3 says, But I fear... When the Holy Spirit says, I fear, when Paul says, I fear, there's something to be wary about. So this is 2 Corinthians 11, 3. He says, I'm afraid somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, which goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. So your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached... Or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul here is writing as he's moved by the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm afraid that if someone comes and starts teaching you something that's different and it's fancy and it's persuasive and he's a a good motivational speaker, I'm afraid you're going to believe him. And so he says in verses 13 and 14, he says, Such are false apostles, deceitful workers, who transform themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself also transforms himself into an angel of light. Wow, that's frightening. We are working against a, the nemesis who has the power to do these tragic and terrible things. And so it goes back to the book of James, that Christians who teach. And that's all of us in some capacity, some more than others. We should be wary. 
and should be concerned. Not necessarily worried or anxious, but cautious, maybe is the more appropriate word that we should use. And if, that's, if you say, well, that's not me because I don't, I don't teach classes and I don't teach anyone because I'm not able to do that. Christians who learn should be cautious and should be wary as well. So I want to talk about not just what Satan appears like or what he seems to be, but I want to spend the rest of our time looking at what Satan is allowed to do, as I highlighted at the outset of our study together tonight. Now, the fact is, is we need to understand and be reminded that nowhere in Scripture is Satan described or depicted as powerless, but instead he's depicted as someone who has power. Now, it is true, going back to our introduction, those questions that we were asking, who's more powerful, God or Satan? Well, that's, that's, that's slow-pitch softball, right? Uh, that's easy. We know that God is more powerful. We, we can read that in so many different passages. Uh, we'll talk about Job 1 and 2 in just a minute or, or two. But we understand that he has what I would call significant latitude so that he can tempt man to sin. Now, you can argue about the fairness of that and whether or not God should allow that or not. But the fact is, is he has an allowance to tempt you and to tempt me and to make our lives miserable. And again, we see that in passages like Job 1 and 2 and then all the way through the end of the book. But I want you to know, if you would, three things about Satan's allowance. Number one, Satan is allowed to have his own angels. He has angels associated with him. In fact, we see the phrase Satan's angels used a couple of different times. Um, Matthew chapter 25, you could go back and read that passage. Or Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. And then note if you would, and I think this is very important, that his angels suggest that they were evil too. That they were just as guilty as Satan was. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about the origin of Satan at the conclusion of our study together tonight. But simply put, what I mean by that is this. Satan has these angels who seemingly were not created by God as being evil because that would be against the uh, trajectory of the way that God does things. He doesn't create evil things, but he creates beings who have free will. And we have remarked a couple of different times, and now you probably by now understand the flavor of where we've been going in this series, that there are some striking similarities between angels and human beings. We are different, but there are some striking similarities, notably the fact that we all have the free will. Just as angels had free will in order to do what God wanted them to do or to be disobedient, Satan has angels along with him who have chosen to be disobedient to God. We also need to appreciate, secondly, that Satan has the ability to tempt. We're going to spend a lot of time on this because that's, that's a, a sermon or two just by itself. And that's typically where we go when we look at Satan is his ability to tempt. But, of course, you have passages like the book of Job, where not only do you have Job 1 and 2, which is the most read section of Job, but you have the remaining uh, conversations between his three friends who say, you've done something terribly wrong, uh, you need to repent, you need to change your ways, because that's why these things have transpired. Or Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in chapter 6 and verse 11, and he says, 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand or withstand the wiles or the schemings or the tricks of the devil himself. Or 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 8, 9, and 10. Beware because you're dealing with a roaring lion. Worse than a roaring lion. A roaring lion can take your life. Satan can destroy you and make your life miserable and, and, and lead you to an eternity separated from God. So these three passages and others that we could turn to, if we were really going to develop this particular study a little bit further, teach us that Satan is a, is a threat, he's worth being concerned about, and that he tempts. But there's a good news, and the good news is this, and that's the third thing, and that is we appreciate that Satan's power is limited. Satan doesn't have ultimate power. Again, if you haven't read Job 1 and 2 in the last, let's be very liberal here, six months, go back and read at least the first couple chapters of Job. It'll take you all of about three minutes to read two chapters because you're so familiar with it, it'll just flow down the pages. And then read the rest of Job, as some of us are doing in a, in a study uh, going on right now. Uh, but the fact is, is do you remember the conversation that Satan had with the Lord where he says, if I... If you allow that hedge around him to be taken away, I can get him to break. I'll make him break. I'll cause him to, to fall and, and, and to falter. And God says, well, go ahead, try. Don't harm him physically. And then God says, okay, now go ahead and harm him physically. Just don't take his life. And, of course, Job loses ultimately almost everything except his life. But yet in all this, he does not sin against God with his lips. And... Paul would famously write in one of the most comforting verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. He says that God provides a way of escape to all people. Not just to those who he favors, but to all individuals. So we appreciate the fact that Satan appears in those four different ways. Satan is allowed. But there are some things we need to understand that Satan is not. And I, this goes back to the introduction of our study together tonight. It is important to note that Satan is not God, nor is he a counterpart equal to God. God is eternal. And even though you and I have an eternal component inserted into us, we are not technically eternal. We are immortal. There's a difference between those two. And we have a beginning and we have no end, which is wonderful because we get to spend eternity with our Lord if we're faithful and just, just living our lives to him. But the fact of the matter is, is he is created so we are already giving away one of the big applications, and that is we are teaching, and, and it is my firm belief, and I don't think that I am going to be too offensive in saying I would be fairly dogmatic about this, this point. Satan is not an eternal being. He's not something that's been around forever engaged because that would make him in, in – all purposes equal to the Lord. Furthermore, he's not the evil component of God. You know, the idea of the, the Asian black and white uh, little kind of circle thing with the yin and the yang. You have the good and you have the bad. You have the righteous and you have the evil. That's not what's going on here. You've got God on one side for the last 83.7 trillion years. And I just made that up because that's about the highest I can think. Uh, for eternity, and you've had Satan all that time going against him. 
that doesn't seem to make much sense to me, as we'll talk a little bit more about in just a moment. I want to actually go back to Job 1 and Job 2. And we've referenced Job a couple of different times because anytime you have a study of Satan, you're going to go back to the book of Job, especially the first uh, couple of conversations. But if you would look at Job uh, chapter 1 and then Job chapter 2, and we'll just make a couple of very brief observations here. In Job chapter 1, in verse 11, he says, Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. This is Satan speaking to our Creator. And the Creator says back to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. Notice what happened there? God put a barrier or a limitation on what Satan was capable of doing. Let me ask you this. Is there anybody or anything that can put a limitation on what God is able to do? And I suppose the only asterisk would be he can't lie. I, I, I get that. His character is that he can't lie. But you understand the point that I'm making here and where we're going. Look over in chapter 2 and verse 6. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Satan didn't respond by saying, I'm going to... He says, spare his life. Yeah, right. I'll go take his life and destroy him. Because I'm more powerful than God. Or I'm equally powerful to God. Satan himself, though he would never admit it in public, privately knows he is subservient to God. He cannot do the things that God is able to do. He has to ask permission from God and able to, in order to do these things that he's able to do. And then in John chapter 10, over in the New Testament, we see where God proves yet again his superiority to Satan on another occasion, where in John chapter 10, in verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now, there's been a lot of false teaching on John chapter 10, verse 28, with the idea where Calvinism has now bled into this verse uh, and mistaught. That's not the scope of our study together tonight. Simply, what I'm saying here is that when Jesus says, these are my people, hands off. There's nothing that you can do to them. That means that if we continue to stay close to the Lord, we are safe. Just as Jesus would cry in Matthew 22, 27, somewhere in the latter part of the book of Matthew and say, as a mother hen would gather her chicks to protect them, so would I do that to these inhabitants if they would only come to me. Now, when we choose to disregard the Lord and do what we want to do, and we separate ourselves from him, we are void of the protections that come from him. But if we draw close to God, James says, he will draw near to us as well. So God here proves his superiority. It is also important to clear up some confusion on the subject of Lucifer. And time is escaping us. So we won't spend a long time on this. If you want to study this further, I'd be happy to do a sermon just on that. But the term Lucifer is a term that in the world's point of view is almost always associated as being equal to or codenamed for Satan. 
And you would think that somewhere in the book of Revelation or somewhere in 1 Peter 5 or 1 Corinthians 10 or maybe one of those passages that talks about Satan, 2 Corinthians 11, for example, that maybe there'd be some reference to Lucifer. But the term is found how many times and found in what location? And as good Bible students, you know that it is found only way back in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Where it says Lucifer or one who is this star that has fallen. Many will teach that Lucifer is Satan. And while there are certainly some characteristics about Lucifer, about his pridefulness and about his, uh, his proud demeanor, that certainly fit into the motif of what uh, Satan is like, we need to be cautious about broadly interpreting that particular fact. I'm not suggesting that this would be the first text that you go to, by the way, when you're studying with someone for the first time. But it may come up at some point, and so there may be some need to be familiar with the subject. This teaching that Lucifer is Satan is based somewhat loosely but somewhat affirmatively on Luke chapter 10 and verse 18. And being familiar with Luke chapter 10, verse 18, is important, especially as we'll point out in just a moment, its context. Where if you read it just by itself, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And that's the only verse you read. And then you read uh, the idea of the fallen star uh, going back to Isaiah chapter 14. You can put two and two together. Now, again, it could be. And I, 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 I used to teach this a little bit differently. But someone made a comment to me a number of years ago. And I thought, that's kind of an interesting comment. It could be that there are aspects of Lucifer that God put in as the king of Babylon, as we're talking about here, because of what's going on in Isaiah chapter 14, that are precursors or foreshadowings of an understanding of who Satan was. But I believe that these two observations teach us that Lucifer is not Satan, and that's based on the context of Isaiah chapter 14. Read the first 11 verses, and on the context of Luke chapter 10, and I know we're going kind of fast here towards the conclusion of our study. The, the point that I'm trying to make is that it's not quite as simple as it's made to be, but yet it is simple. It's not simple in the fact that someone says, well, let's pluck this verse here and pluck this verse here, add them together, and you get voila. But it is simple in that Satan is someone to be concerned with. Is he a fallen angel? Well, that's where we close our study together tonight. As with many of the topics in this series, definitive information might not be available. And I started it with Deuteronomy 29 and I end with Deuteronomy 29. But there are a couple of theories that are often presented. In fact, it seems to me, and I've been doing some research over the last couple of years and doing some readings and trying to understand where people come from on the subject of angels uh, and, and of Satan and his origin, that there's two major theories about Satan and where he came from. Theory number one is the one that we're going to put up. We're going to crumble it up like a piece of paper and we're going to toss it away. Because it doesn't seem to have any validity to it. And that is simply this. And that is theory number one is that God created a tempter. Now did God create Satan? We've already presented evidence that it seems as if he did. He created Satan like he created every other being. Angel, animal, human being, rock, tree. God created it all. Go back to the book of Psalms. 
and look at the 86th Psalm and you'll see that God created everything, including angels. Some have suggested that God put Satan in place for the purpose of testing mankind. And that Satan was never, and I put in quotes, good. That he was always bad. That he came out and it was like, whoa, he's, he's, he already looks ugly. But that doesn't seem to be what fits given James chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. Now it is true that God allows us to endure trials. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. But you remember what happens in verses 13 and 14 of the book of James? James doesn't contradict himself. He says, let me take a little bit of a different direction. And the direction that I want to take is on the subject of understanding that the temptations that we face are not because God is trying to mess us up. That would be rude. I mean, that would be, that would be truly serving a God that has uh, some real questions to it. Let no one say when he is tempted... That I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does, any, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So this seems to not fit the mold of where Satan comes from. So where does Satan come from? It comes from theory number two, and that is God created angels that rebelled. Angels that said of their own free will, we are not interested in doing your will anymore. After all, we know that hell is reserved for Matthew chapter 25, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, for Satan and his angels. Boy, I thought that interesting. It never says, granted, there are going to be human beings that are transformed in a, in a way that will spend eternity in hell. And that's not the most positive message of the week, and I understand that. But Satan... And his angels is what hell is designed for. Do you ever think about that? That's designed for them. But yet human beings who are disobedient to the Lord will have to face that as well. That just is a very sad situation. And why we do what we do in trying to be a servant like we sang about a, a few moments ago. The idea of angels to find God is a biblically provable concept. Jude chapter 6, very late in the New Testament, is a passage that would be incomplete. Or this is a study that would be incomplete without reading that particular verse. Angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their abode, he has reserved an everlasting change and a darkness for the judgment of the great day. What's he saying here? I mean, I, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. There are a lot more people. In fact, about 170 more uh, uh, smarter people. But... This tells me angels did not keep their proper domain or their own domain. They left their own abode. He's reserved in everlasting punishment or judgment for them. And then notice, if you would, going back just a few pages in your Bibles uh, to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, where it says, If God did not spare the angels who sinned, underline the noun and underline the verb. Usually when we talk about sinning, it's men and women, human beings. But here the noun is angels. And the verb, past tense, is sinned. So angels have the capacity to sin. Now, can I explain that fully? No. Can I answer the question of why would an angel in the presence of the Lord and seeing his grandeur, why would he sin? I don't know. 
I guess the same reason why a human being in the presence of God's grandeur would sin as well. Because we have that free will. So angels can sin. Chapter 2 and verse 4. And it has been reserved for judgment in chains of darkness and hell for them to be delivered. Sin and Satan go together too. While we're here late in the New Testament, just go ahead and turn three pages over in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. Where it says, He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now I don't think that means that from the moment that he came out as God had created him. In some form or fashion that God says, you're going to be evil. I'm going to make you the evil one. But from the beginning, he chose to rebel and he chose to sin. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of Satan or of the devil. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, again late in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 6, there's a passage that I think needs to be uh, looked at here. It's in the context of looking at bishops. Or elders in the local church. And he says, if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Which is why he has to have a, uh, in, a family in submission and children in submission with all reverence. He says, I don't want this man to be a novice, to be a brand new Christian or to be a new convert, some versions say. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. If you want to underline two words, underline the word pride and the word devil. Because those two words go together in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6. This seems to suggest the likely root of Satan's sin. God, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, as we referenced just a few moments ago, is said to have cast out Satan from heaven. We see this in Revelation 12 verse 9. It is important to remember the figurative nature of Revelation so as not to connect this with Lucifer and then to make uh, conclusions that aren't necessarily true. Simply put, given all this... This is where I wanted to conclude. It seems that a likely, biblically-based explanation is simply this. And that is, Satan was, and you could argue, is still some form of an angel who sinned, because we know the angels had the capacity to sin, was removed from heaven, but for whatever reason or reasons, which are somewhat explained, somewhat left shrouded in mystery, able to retain some limited power to tempt. And you'll notice that I use those words very carefully. I put them in italics because I try to choose those words carefully. And also uh, notice the word likely. And I say that simply because in all, in all uh, good faith, I don't have all the answers. Uh, but this is the best that I could do at finding out where Satan came from, why he has the power to do what he's able to do as we try our very best to understand angels better. This is not the most exciting study, and I'll give you that. It's not one that's a lot of fun to preach in terms of because it's so negative, and it's about someone that is very negative. But someone once said that negative preaching is positive preaching, and that when you talk about negative things, that's a positive thing. When you talk about sin, when you talk about hell, when you talk about destruction, when you talk about being separated from God, that makes me feel good because that reminds me of why I want to do what's right. And then I feel better about doing what's right. And then I want to serve God more faithfully going forward into the future. And I hope that our discussion or explanation of Satan has been helpful to you. You do not want to tangle with him. The unfortunate thing is that we will all have to face him. And we all do face him. 
But the Lord is with us to provide us the way of escape so that we can have that opportunity to defeat Satan, to say not today, to say, if necessary, get behind me, as even Jesus would say. Because I'm not going to put up with you today. I'm not going to do. And the devil will flee from you as was found in Matthew chapter 4 and other passages in the New Testament. If we can help you to serve God and not to serve Satan anymore, we would love that opportunity. As Brother David pointed out this morning, there may be some who, even as Christians, are not living correctly. And who have left your proper place uh, in service to God. And are now worshiping Satan. Because if you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping someone. It may be yourself, but it's not the Lord. And that's what we want to avoid. If we can help you, we'd love that opportunity. If you are not a Christian and you're ready to commit yourself to Christ by being baptized, we'd love that opportunity to help you. Let us know while we stand and while we sing.